0: And three hundred and sixty-five day returns.
2: I think that's a danger if 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 the world becomes too po-faced. You know, if if um, I think if there's, you know, irre- irreverence in general is a healthy thing. You know, because it makes you skeptical about authority. It, it makes you question the things that people tell you in a in a constructive way. There's a danger that that if, if if the world turns too sort of solemn about everything, I think there's
1: a danger that you that people become more brittle. Welcome to the Humorology Podcast with me, Paul Baross, and my glittering lineup of guests from the worlds of business, sport and entertainment who are going to share their wisdom and their use of humor with you. Humorology is the study of how humor can dramatically improve your business success and your life. Humorology puts the fun into business fundamentals, increases the value of your laughing stock, and puts a punchline back into your bottom line. Please remember to like, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. My guest on this edition of the Humorology podcast is a multi-award-winning comedic creative who has flexed his funny bone as a comedy writer, performer and director. His work on BBC Radio 4 has been lauded as legendary and includes credits as the creator and star of Old Harry's Game, It's Only a Theory and Andy Hamilton Remembers. When he isn't starring as Satan himself, He can be found touring the country with his brilliant one-man show, starring as a panellist in a variety of quiz shows such as Have I Got News For You, The Infinite Monkey Cage and Would I Lie To You or creating quality pieces of comically crafted content for television and radio. Whether co-writing and directing family sitcoms like Outnumbered or voicing Dr Elephant on the international hit Peppa Pig. He has a penchant for performing with fun at the forefront. Andy Hamilton, welcome to the Humorology Podcast.
2: Thank you, Paul. That was was a good intro.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, we like a bit of alliteration here on the Humorology Podcast, as you can tell. You grew up uh, in Fulham in southwest London, very close to Chelsea's football ground, uh, when it wasn't quite as salubrious as it is now. Yeah. Was humour valued in your family and did the young Andy Hamilton have a natural facility for it?
2: I've been asked that before and I think, yeah, the answer is there were a lot of funny uncles and aunties. You know, I remember um, the house was a, um, a kind of focal point. Um, it just, the way it panned out, it, it was sort of the central gathering place and I could so my memories are of a a house being full of people um a lot of the time and I did um I mean my dad was 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 quite funny um and my mum liked a good laugh but I did have some quite sort of extrovert funny uncles and aunts you know so um and I think comedy played a huge role in the sense that the favorite Hamilton sport and the way they expressed affection was that sort of um, wind up, you know, winding each other up was the way, was that was the currency that you you dealt in. And, you know, there is a lot of comedy in the way, (laughs) the mischief of winding people up. And, you know, we would gather around the telly and, um, you know, and watch sort of Hancock and Steptoe and stuff like that you know so although obviously I wouldn't have been consciously aware of it there was um it it was quite a dominant force yeah my mum and dad you know I'm a middle class product of working class parents my mum and dad my mum's family were about as poor as you could get when she was growing up you know it was probably the 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 yeah, the dialogue was a little bit more rough and ready than, uh, you know, th- than what I grew into, if you like.
1: Yeah, I, I'm intrigued by that because my mother was from the East End of Glasgow and uh, right. similar to your mother, that poor background where, you know, there were in, no inside lavies until she arrived oh. in London at, at 18 years old. And I wonder how humour, in terms of survival, is um, a mechanism for that. You talk about uh, in, in, I think, one of your books about your dad being a prisoner of war. Um, Mm. And um, my father was a Hungarian refugee who was in refugee camps and all those things. And how important and where humour is in the survival mechanism.
2: Yeah, no, I'm sure that's... uh... That's true. I mean, I didn't meet my maternal grandmother, but I mean, she must have been a remarkably resilient woman. She, she, her life reads like a sort of Barbara Cookson novel, you know, just extraordinary uh, difficulty that she had. Um, but all her kids had lovely, warm natures and um, and could always see the funny side of things. So. I can only imagine they got that from her you know I mean to give you an idea of how poor they were um my mum would tell a story about how um when she was at school in Newcastle they would um they'd send inspectors round charity inspectors would come round and the children would be told um to stand on the chairs so that the inspector could look at their their shoes their footwear and mum had these terrible old um shoes that were falling apart, but that she liked. And the charity inspector presented, gave her a pair of huge boots um, and she hated them. And and she walked home sort of through the snow with these boots round her neck, you know, because she didn't want to wear them. And when she got home uh, with these boots round her neck, her mum opened the door and burst into tears. And of course, Mum presumed that that her mum hated the boots as much as she did because there were tears of relief because you know someone had given her kid proper shoes to wear you know and w- the winter was setting and setting in and and that's how poor they were you know Um so um, and she lost her dad in a extraordinarily uh, tragic circumstances and they they. um you know, she said she, she often remembers hearing her mum crying because she didn't know if they'd have any food in the morning. So um, I'm sure that given that there was no welfare state, um, you, your sense of humour would be one of the last defences you have against how awful that must have been, um, particularly for her mum who's, a, you know, a lone parent in an impossible situation. Yeah. I mean, it is, it, I think it is a last line of defense and that's why, that's why everybody has a story about something funny that happened at a funeral or, you know, they, they remember these moments of uh, or something someone said or they, they remember these comic moments um, as being little kind of rafts of um sanity in, in, in mad moments, you know.
1: So do you think that humour generally aids resilience?
2: Yeah, yeah, I think it does. I think it does. And I think that's a danger if, if, if the world becomes too po-faced, you know? If, if um, I think if there's, you know, ir- irreverence in general is a healthy thing you know, because it makes you skeptical about authority. It, it makes you question the things that people tell you in a in a constructive way. You know, and I think that um, there's a danger that that if, if if the world turns too sort of solemn about everything, I think there's a danger that you that people become more brittle. Yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah and it's interesting, isn't it? Because also. Uh as well as the things you just mentioned, it, it, it bursts the bubble of, or punctures the bubble of pim- pomposity, isn't it? And yeah. isn't that why totalitarian regimes tend to hate humour because it, it's an effective tool to, you yeah. know?
2: Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, they never managed to, I mean, it, you know, it always breaks out, doesn't it? I mean, in in Russia, of course, you you had the, the, the bread queue jokes, you know, that was where that was where the jokes about the state and um, got circulated and, uh, you know, it's it, and maybe that shows that it is a basic human need, if you like, uh, to be able to crack jokes when things are terrible.
1: Yeah, I, I, I think it's, it's also a release, isn't it? It's uh, yeah. from the tension of the moment, because uh, from a psychological perspective, it actually changes the structure of the brain. So it's actually a, a yeah. relief and a release at the same time.
2: Yeah, yeah. I do think yeah. it's interesting that, you know, when people, if someone has a fall, if someone's walking along the pavement and they trip up, very often, and, and, and you know, you can see that it's hurt, they bang their knees or whatever but very often they will laugh as they get up you know even though they go ow. ow." and I think um the nearest thing I've read to sort of an account of that phenomenon that makes sense is that you laugh as a signal to the rest of the tribe that you're all right you know it's a it's a it's a way of distinguishing between Um, something they've got to worry about and something they don't have to worry about. So you are signaling to the tribe. It's okay. I mean, I suppose the, the, the troubling question is whether you are signaling that you're okay, because you don't want them to leave you behind, you know, (laughs) or whether, or whether you're just doing it for the good of the tribe that they don't waste time coming to uh, see if you're okay.
1: Well, actually, and isn't it also a signal that you are strong, And so therefore you are useful to the tribe and you don't want to be left... Yes,
2: (laughs) that's right. Don't leave me behind for the sabre-toothed tiger. Look, I'm fine. I'm fine, (laughs) I laugh off. There's a bit of blood, but
1: I'm fine, yeah. (laughs) It's it's just a flesh wound to paraphrase Monty (laughs) Python. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's true. We're talking about things, uh, what makes you laugh, Andy?
2: In any given day, I mean, Just the world in general, really. I mean, um, I went to, um, I went to Wimborne last weekend. I was doing a a show in Wimborne and me and my wife Libby went um, and and stayed over, you know. I was walking around Wimborne and there was, um, you know, it's got nice old churches and old Elizabethan buildings and stuff. And, um, but there's a Salvation Army place And they had a big placard outside, you know, quite nicely produced. And it said, of course, there's a God. Now stop worrying and and get on with enjoying your life. And that way, I just, the tone of that, that kind of, of course, why are you (laughs) centuries discussing it? Um, But fundamentally, the whole kind of carousel of uh, people. But in terms of sort of my uh, getting through the day, it's just, little things you see in here
1: is there that danger um, obviously I know lots of comics and uh, is there that danger that that making a living from comedy you're always an- analyzing why is that you know it's that whole thing about a bunch of comics and writers in a room and you're performing to them and that the, rather than laugh they'll they'll actually think about it and go funny
2: yeah. Yeah, they'll evaluate rather than evaluate.
1: That's a good one. The, the laugh, yeah,
2: yeah, that is a risk. I mean, I think when I was younger, I had a tendency to watch and evaluate rather than just enjoy, you know. But I, I don't do that now. It still amazes me how how polarized people's opinions can be about whether someone is funny or not, you know.
1: Yeah, well, you spent your whole working life. Um, being reliant on people making this strange involuntary action, i.e. laughing. Is that very stressful uh, uh, in general? And, and, And what's the antidote to that? Because you're always on that knife edge, aren't you?
2: Well, I suppose it depends on the context. Like if I'm doing the one man show, Fundamentally, I, I, because that's not my main job, you know, my my proper job, you know, in the days when you wrote your job on your passport, you know, it said, right, so that is my real job. I go out and perform as a kind of, for myself, really. I go out just to have a good time. And so I don't find that stressful because I know that provided I go out and talk to them, in a natural, as long as I am myself, I'm reasonably confident that I'll be able to make them laugh. You know, where I suppose it is stressful is if you you are writing, say you're writing a sitcom, and you've rehearsed it all week, and um, and you're you're just it's a trust exercise. You just have to think, right, we've worked on it, we've got it as good as we can, and now the actors are gonna go out there and they're gonna sort of bring it home. And, you know, the first 90 seconds of any sitcom record, you are on hooks a bit, you're listening out, you know, what sort of audience are they? You know, because that will influence um, how well the show is executed, you know. Once you know you're okay, once you know that you're safe with that audience, then, um, then it's all right. I mean, again, when I was younger, I did used to watch shows a bit like following your horse around the Grand National, you know. I think right, we've cleared that fence; that's good, you know. But again, i i I find I don't watch them the same way now when I'm at a
1: recording. You know, it's interesting because on the shows where you're writing rather than performing. Um, and you're writing for somewhere else, do you try to write for the actor or the character, or do you write for how you think or expect the actor or character to adjust to that?
2: They all kind of fuse if it's going well you know by the, the moment the character the actor steps onto the set they 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 make that distinction sort of disappear you know the really good ones um, and I mean, sitcom acting, for example, is a really difficult craft, you know, because you are, the actor is um, having to give a performance that's comic for a 250, 300 people sat in front of them. But, it's, but the performance has got to be the right size for the camera. And, um, and it's, so it's got to be natural, but they've also got to know where the laughs are. They've got to know where the beats are. So it's highly, highly technical. But the ones who are really good manage to do all of that, to 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 master all the technical side, and also create a character who lives and breathes. You know, in people's homes. The fact that they achieve that, you know, the love that an audience will feel for a Dell boy or a um, a step pound step toe, or or even even a nutcase like Basil Fawlty. I mean. The audience know that he's kind of mad, but they still want to be in his company. So, oh yeah, you're right for the character, but I suppose once you cast the actor, then you know their speech rhythms and you know, um, so you probably accommodate that.
1: It's interesting when you're talking about, you know, I mean, because it does take somebody very special to do. That, especially with all the pressure of learning your lines, having an audience there, uh, cameras everywhere, directors telling you what to do, and still be delivering a naturalistic performance while hitting the beats, as you say. Do you think that um, that is a gift given from God, for want of a better word, understanding where the funny is? Or can it be learnt? That is
2: really... No, I think that's an intuitive gift. I think knowing where the joke is, so knowing instinctively that if you emphasize that word, it is funny and if you emphasize the other word, it isn't. Or knowing uh, you know, where to pause or knowing how brave to be with the pause. I think those are intuitive things. I mean I think you know direction, you could give guidance, and in rehearsal there's sometimes a the process of experimentation, you know because some, some lines, for example, there, there's probably more than one way of doing it and being funny, and you kind of experiment. you feel a lot of great sitcom actors, you know it's in rehearsal, they're always ruffling the lines slightly just trying out different permutations of it. And then they decide which one they're most comfortable with. And that's the one they do. And and the ones who do have that intuitive gift are right 95% of the time, you know.
1: Because a lot of people who listen to this podcast aren't, uh, you know, obviously in the business and they want Mm. something to take away for themselves. You talk about intuitive gift but you can build on that can't you if you if you can hear funny you can learn to be funnier by how do you, how do you think you can learn to be funnier
2: well i mean i suppose if you take the approach that it is fundamentally a version of storytelling mostly i mean you know if you if you mean wit you know kind of the ability to come back very quickly with a say a funny thing quickly that's maybe slightly different but in terms of uh telling a funny story either an anecdote about an experience or a or a funny story or a shaggy dog story or a sort of like a Jewish joke or something like that a lot of whether a joke gets a laugh or not depends on whether the information is laid out in the right order you know um and and which bits you keep back you know and stuff like that I think you can improve that kind of comic storytelling uh, muscle. But what, you, what I think will be hard to synthesise, if you like, is the instinctive grasp of, of where the funny lies in a particular thing does that make sense i'm not sure yeah
1: no sure. it makes complete sense but think because i think actually the, there's a lot of that which is true in psychology as well of about listening and properly listening and connecting to yourself and to the person you're telling the story to and that's where wit comes from and i think storytelling is about structure and understanding um where that needs to go. Talking of funny stories, can you tell me a true funny story about something that's happened to you?
2: Something that, that, that um, could have been very nasty, but wasn't. When I was about seven years old, um, we lived next door to this playground. It was a very hot day. There was a big, big heat wave and uh, the tarmac in the playground was sort of melting a bit. And there was a kid called Joey Anucci who'd got a dart and he was amusing himself by chucking the dart and it was sticking in the tarmac. And me and my brother were sitting in the shade at the bottom of this fence. And I've got a memory of my brother saying, let's move. I think we should move. And then the next moment I thought, oh, I've been hit on the forehead by a stone. That's what I thought it was. But when I opened my eyes, I could see feathers because the dart was sticking in my eyebrow bone there, in my the forehead like that. Oh, <laughs> and uh, there was no, I don't remember, there was no blood or anything. It was just in the bone. like that. And um, my brother, with amazing son froid, really, for a 13-year-old boy, said, uh, OK, um, we'll go, I'll, let's go home. Mum will know what to do. <laughs> said, so he let. The house was about 40 yards away, you know, (laughs) so my poor mum opened the door, and I was a tiny kid, you know, uh, that's no surprise, and uh, she looked down and I was standing there with this dart in my head, and my brother said, Andy's got a dart in his head, which, which, you know, I'm pretty sure she spotted, Because mums have an instinct about this stuff. And and um so the what was funny about it was how downbeat it all was. Because obviously my mum, you can imagine, I mean, your your heart would be in your mouth, wouldn't you? Um, but she said, but of course you've got to. Stay calm for the kid. You know you mustn't panic the kid. So she said, "All right then. Well, let's go down the hospital, see what they say." <laughs> so sort of a gun and then me. And I remember walking down Ifield Road where we where we grew up. And of course, all my mates and everything. I was still in the playground. Hey, okay, you're right. I go, oh yeah, got a dart in my head. Got to go to the hospital. <laughs> and then we went to um, Princess Beatrice Hospital, I think it was, which was at the top of the road looking back you know it was funny how people were determined not to make a fuss about it I mean now of course you know everyone would be photographing you on their phone and you'd probably be splashed all over the front page of Daily Mail as an example of Broken Britain you know but uh, <laughs> but in those days so that that was you know one example of something actually quite serious but that had a sort of uh, you know, really comic aspect to it, you
1: know yeah, You could have been a TikTok internet sensation Yeah, yeah,
2: but I mean you know, I'm sure my mum and dad must have they must have, it must have been a terrible because, you know a, a, a quarter of an inch further down, that would have been it you know, yeah. so um yeah, I don't know why that one sprung to mind, I was trying to think of uh, stories about you know serious situations but um, uh,
1: yeah it's a great story and it's, yeah it's terrifying at the same time yeah
2: yeah
1: wonder. Well, that's interesting though is because um those kind of stories or I mean we go back to the resilience don't we about yeah. you know do we have to care uh, uh for something to be funny is the, is, the, I, is that Part of it. I,
2: I don't know. It's interesting what you're saying about the resilience thing because I don't remember. I mean, maybe it happened when I wasn't there, but I don't remember a huge fuss being made. Do you know what I mean? I think an incident like that now, you would probably expect a visit from, you know, some kind of professional. Uh, <laughs> you know, probably someone would go and see the parents of the who through the dark. You know, there would be you kind of imagine there would be a, a bit of a post-mortem on, on what happened. But my memory is, and maybe that's because they were a post-war generation. They were used to, you know, so they weren't going to get worked up about something bad that nearly happened, you know, right. because they'd lived through genuinely bad things that, that actually happened, you know, so I don't know. But, um it's an interesting
1: thing. You do a phenomenally successful one man show, and, and, and I, I know why, and, and uh, they're great. What tips can you share with people about how to get humor to work on stage? And I mean this for people, anyone who isn't, you know, somebody who's got to make a wedding speech, somebody who's yeah. got to talk at their company day, all those yeah. things. What tips can you give for them?
2: Well, the first one, which is probably the hardest one, is to try to relax. You know, because the more relaxed you seem, even if it, even if it's a front, if you see, you know, if you come across as relaxed, then the audience feels safe and they relax. And if they relax, they will. They are going to laugh more. I mean, to put it at its bluntest. I mean, so that would be. The first one and I suppose the other one is try to be um try to be yourself you know I mean those two sound a little bit contradictory don't they but you know sometimes people kind of think oh I'm I'm supposed to be being funny you know and that's always what kills it isn't it it's you've got to be telling a story you've got to be in the moment which is um uh not an easy thing to achieve but um, and I suppose the other thing is read the room out uh, way you'll know from your performing days that you kind of sometimes you sense that the audience aren't up for a certain kind of thing so you need to sort of if possible be able to mentally self-edit you know um, if they don't seem like the crowd who are up for that kind of story, then don't do another one. You know, don't, um, uh, you know, don't impose on them. <laughs> um, well, I,
1: I think that's very true. And it's about listening to the audience, isn't it really? Yeah. I mean, and when we talk about listening, we'll talk about listening off the top. So you're actually sensing, you know, you can tell when, when an audience, if you look at their faces, if they're up for it.
2: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, and taking your time is the other thing—not rushing, you know. Because if you rush, if you if you if you seem to be rushing, then you won't look relaxed, you know. If you if you seem to be gabbling, or you know, I mean, if you look at all the great stand-ups, you know, they they are quite happy to take their time you know, whether it's Dave Allen or... I mean, Dave used to do it just sitting on a stool with a, a glass of whiskey. I mean, but even like Billy Connolly, you know, Billy does quite a lot of pacing around while he, just, while he just lets them settle after the last laugh and while he kind of organises his thoughts into which direction he's going to go in, you know. Um, once you're inside the story or the joke you need to be reasonably um, you know you need to give it colour but um, so you know you mustn't be boring because you're taking your time but it's just that thing of um, not rushing yeah
1: Yeah, I'm intrigued from a, a psychological perspective, because in psychology, we say that if you want anyone to go into any state, you have to go into that state first. And what you just described was perfect state management, whereby the audience goes, oh, they're relaxed. So yeah. now I can be relaxed as well.
2: Yeah, you certainly I mean, that's a phenomenon that you've will witnessed many times yeah. that. um that first laugh that an audience gives, which is very much the kind of "oh, it's all right, we're going to be safe," laugh, you know, that yeah. kind of "all right, we're going to have a good time." We can tell, we can tell from the the way this bloke has or this woman has begun. Now, of course, once you're known, you have a huge advantage because they feel that way already when they yes. thought that they sat down. Um, but when you when when you're you knew and the crowd don't know you, you know, that, that moment is, is the critical one, I suspect.
1: Well, I, I know it, it's first impressions as well, isn't it? Yeah. If yeah. Because uh, people very rarely change their minds of yeah. Or if they do, it takes an, an eternity to change their yeah. mind. So you have to have that relaxed persona, authenticity, like you mentioned, yeah. uh, and 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 the ability to go. It's like the the, the supply teacher who goes, "I've got this," rather yes. than the one who bumbles in looking nervous. You yeah. Know? yeah,
2: yeah. yes. There's a lot of comparisons between. Supply of teachers and comedians. I, mean, yeah, yeah.
1: I loved your um, new book, Longhand, which is uh, f- phenomenal.
2: Look, by an astonishing coincidence, look, I, no I way. Yeah, who'd have thought?
1: Actually. Thing. Actually, for our audience watching on YouTube, can you open it out because it is a a phenomenal to look at inside as well, and you don't normally say that about a book.
2: It is genuinely, genuinely unique, and I know people who say things unique. You know, usually that's bullshit, marketing bullshit. But as far as we're aware, and we, this is the first novel to be published. In handwriting, yeah, it's in Andre Now the handwriting is probably backwards, isn't it? So it'll look, but but uh, no, it is legible. No.
1: It, um, but it's very legible. You and it, it's it's a beautiful handwriting. I was thanks. shocked by how good it was. And what I loved is there were some crossings out in there and things that had been yeah. left in. And uh, was that yeah. deliberate? That
2: yes. <laughs> well, <laughs> no, not, no. Not, not every crossing out is deliberate. Yeah, I mean, we we, we, we are confident that that is the only uh, work of fiction that's been done in printed in handwriting, unless, well, if you want to go back before Caxton put all those monks out of work, you know, th- but this, <laughs> yes. I mean, you've got Wainwright's uh, um, Lake District walks and stuff. But yeah, no, the, uh, the, well, as you know, the situation in it, you know, the reason it, it's in handwriting, it's not, um, completely arbitrary. It is that, um, the man who's written it, uh, has to write a very long letter to his loved one to explain why he has to abandon her after 20 years of happily living together, um, in order to protect her. Um, and, and he's writing against the deadline, you know, he's got to get it finished quickly and, 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 and get away from her if she is to be safe so I thought well a man writing against a deadline like that you know if he made a little error he wouldn't go back and write it out again he would just cross it out so so um there were those kind of crossings out but there are also sections where the crossing out tells you about his state of mind and that was inspired by um I went to the British Library and I was looking at a a wonderful old letter by Queen Elizabeth I, and it's a letter to to her courtiers explaining that if it's all the same with them, she will decide whether she marries or not and who she will marry. And it starts off, she's got lovely handwriting, it starts off in this beautiful copper plate, but as the letter progresses, it gets more and more jagged and then there's (laughs) lots of crossing (laughs) out and then writing up the margins and you know and it it was such a perfect essay in understanding someone's state of mind as they were writing the letter so yeah there's a few places in the book where you can tell he's getting upset uh, or frightened because because of the um the crossings out yeah and sometimes as you say sometimes you can see what he crossed out you can see what what he chose to try to hide I mean I don't do it sort of perversely but you always try you know as a writer that the, one of the most attractive things is to do something that's completely original that no one else has uh has done before and I thought I just hadn't seen um storytelling done that way so
1: but it's a great book and I advise all our listeners to rush out and buy Longhand as soon as possible because you really, really will uh, love it. It's phenomenal. If I asked you to write a business case, Andy, for humour, what would you include in it? Well,
2: fundamentally, I would say uh, happy people are more efficient, even from a ruthless commercial perspective. It it pays to have a good environment, a good working environment, and humour is sort of crucial to that. So that's that's probably the place where I'd start. Given that it will foster resilience, then you know that will promote a working environment where people don't um, don't lose morale too easily, don't salt. Too much, you know. I mean, it's quite interesting. I don't know if you, I was watching the Blair Brown um, documentary.
1: I've seen the first uh, one, and I, was,
2: yeah. Oh, well, there's a moment in that where, where Gordon Brown, at the very end, where the writing is on the wall and they know he's got to resign, he had this sort of couple of hours just sitting in number 10 with all these kind of mates from New Labour. And Ed Ball said, they just told each other jokes. Often they retold terrible jokes that Gordon Brown used to tell them and sort of laughed at how bad the jokes were, but that was their response to the imminent um, uh, death of the new Labour project, really. It was a moment of affection and bonding. And actually, Ed Ball said it was quite touching. And um, and I just thought it was really interesting that uh, so that's what they fell back on, you know, but um, yeah, I, I would say fundamentally, given that it greases the wheels of sort of human interaction, then, I mean, if you got an office with no, that's humor, less then you, you would have a real problem, wouldn't you?
1: Well. It's interesting because you've worked in so many creative environments, you know, going back to sort of um, working with Roy Hudd on the news lines, and you talk about him creating an atmosphere. And I know you work um, with and in the offices of Hatrick. What do you think is the secret of of creating uh, uh, an environment where creativity can uh, flourish?
2: Well, that's that's a really interesting question, because when I started out, there were a lot of shows where you um, were a contributor, paid contributor, but, but you were in a room with lots of other paid contributors. And you weren't, you know, you all had different size commissions and you were all at different rates. And that did um, sometimes create a kind of wariness about sharing comic ideas because you were you were effectively competing with each other. Um, now friendships formed, and you found like with Guy Jenkin, you know, uh, you know, we would always kind of swap ideas, and you'd say, "Oh, I can't. Uh, this is very funny, I think, but I can't find a way of ending it." You know, and that kind of cross pollination would happen, but the money got in the way. So I remember uh, we did a show called Who Dares Wins on Channel 4. And what we did was we had six writers and we just said from the beginning, everyone's on the same money. Everybody's on the same money. And that the writers room on that show was a really productive writers room because we were cross pollinating all the time, you know, um, so you had a massive sort of engine of creativity and we had a lot of show to fill as well. I mean, initially it was a, an hour long, show, was 52 minutes worth of program, you know? Um, and it also fostered um, sort of a, quite an adventurous approach, you know? So we did some sketches that were on other shows would probably be a been have been ruled out as being practically too too difficult but I think um yeah it gave us a sense of adventure and and the fact that we were all in in it together and if you can try trying not to sort of um treat failure as a spectre you know oh. because if you do that I think Think, you know, some people will just tighten up, and uh, you know, I think, think you have to, yeah. You know, any any creative process, it's going to involve an element of experimentation, so the the risk of failure will always be there.
1: No, I think that's really interesting because uh, I create the creative process, and I think this is what sometimes people don't understand, and you've hit the nail on the head. I think with the failure you have to allow it, but it not to be crushed. And it's sort of like the improv world whereby yeah. you listen and you go, it's yes, and rather than no, but yes. um, in the sense of, because if you've killed uh, somebody or their spirit, essentially killed their spirit, yeah. they're not gonna pitch in with their next idea, which could be the one that saves the company and it yes. could be brilliant. So you have to foster an atmosphere. It's about creating an atmosphere, isn't it?
2: Yes, I mean, you can't really encourage risk taking and then sort of somehow punish people for having placed you at risk. You know, it's a a sort of, you know, um, but that's very difficult. You know, again, the money gets in the way, doesn't it? Because of course, um, professionally in quite a few jobs, um, not just in the creative industry, but if you take a risk and it fails and there's, there are commercial consequences, then everyone goes back into their shell and they don't want to come out again because yeah. it's, it's too painful. You know?
1: There's the other argument for humour. If you keep humour in there, it can lighten that atmosphere and keep people going.
2: Well, yeah, I mean, trench humour is, I mean, that's very often... Some filming days just turn into endurance tests, you know, because, I don't know, you're out, you know, say you're out in terrible weather, but you've got to complete it, or, or like a night shoot, which can be very physically punishing sometimes. And you will hear lots of trench humour uh, that people use to keep themselves going, you know. Um, and I'm sure that's true in in every profession where um, where sometimes it is
1: just very hard. Do you think you can be a good communicator without understanding humour, or is it a prerequisite?
2: Well, it depends what you mean by understanding it, doesn't it? I mean, um, valuing it. I think you've got to value it, you know, and you've got to understand that it's an important ingredient in in any mix of uh, then I think then I think you're more likely to fail. Yeah,
1: we've come to the part of the show, Andy, that we like to call quick fire questions.
2: Okay, quick fire questions. All right. Well, I I may not have my quick fire answer brain in, but um, I'll do my best. <laughs> brain I've got in there. I'm, at the sh- moment. I'm sure
1: you will. Who's the funniest? Business person that you've met?
2: Uh, I can't remember his name. <laughs> <laughs> that's the good stuff. I, I, I did an after dinner once, years and years and years ago, for the uh, waste industry. And there was a chat there, and he just told me all the secrets of the waste industry. And he was very, very funny. But that's not much use to you, is it? <laughs> um, oh. I don't get to meet
1: many... Uh, what about in television business? In there...
2: television, well, I mean, the person, he's a good friend. I worked with him a lot over the years, and he's actually in Old Harry's Game. He plays the most revolting human being ever to walk the planet, Thomas, in Old Harry's Game. But Jimmy Mulville is very funny. Um, no, Jimmy. John Lloyd. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I don't think of them as businessmen. although Of course, they are as well. They have to be. And Michael Gray, it's funny. Uh, yeah, I, I,
1: I don't get out much. <laughs> no, no, no. Mike, uh, 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 Jimmy Marville, John Lloyd, and Michael Gray. Um, funny enough, I, um, I think you were there. I know Guy was there um, at Bill Stewart, William G. Stewart's funeral, and Michael Gray made a very funny um, eulogy. Yeah,
2: yeah. Well, William G. I, I mean, he was, he was, he was a lovely man. Uh, He was a great character.
1: You know, I grew up with him. Um, He was like a second father to me, which is uh, so, yeah. So um, his son was my best friend growing up and they lived in the flat above us when we were growing up when Bill was a a scene shifter at the BBC. Right.
2: Bill did a... um, Bill got a series of one-off plays commissioned at um, what was then Central TV, and we went along to this meeting. There were four plays. It was called "Tickets for the Titanic." They were satires on, you know, the modern world, and um, and the people at Central uh, didn't like the ending on one of the plays written by Barry Pilton, and um, so Bill was putting up quite a steadfast defence of this play and then he did this thing which um, was obviously a negotiating ploy, he said well I'm sorry but you know I'm, I'm I'm not prepared to compromise on this unless you accept all four plays as they are written um, that's, I don't think we've got any more to talk about, we need to uh, put something and he got up and he, he was walking out and the, and the writers are sitting there of course, we're not used to hits and we're thinking oh, are we I think we're supposed to walk out as well, so we all got <laughs> up after Bill. And I remember Bill saying, "You could have walked out a bit more decisively," you know. And, it <laughs> and sure enough, they, you know, they called us back in, and you know.
1: But, oh, yeah. that's so Bill! That is yeah. so Bill! No, was oh, good, yeah. Uh, oh God, rest his soul. What book makes you laugh, Andy?
2: Catch twenty-two makes me laugh. Joseph Heller, I, I brilliant. That, I read that not, not that long ago. That made me laugh uh, a lot.
1: What film makes you laugh?
2: Some Like It Hot um, makes me laugh. Um, I love all of Billy Wilder's films, not just, I mean, he did every 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 kind of film. Uh, I'm just in awe of him. Um, we caught, um, the, the other night, on telly I caught the original version of the producers again which although it was full you know there are lots of things in it that you know would not be tolerated now just zero mostel's performance in it just um I'd forgotten how funny he
1: was taking a shift to the other side very briefly what is not funny that's pretty hard for me
2: I mean, I think there's comic elements to to pretty much everything. I mean, it's quite interesting. I I I used to open the second half of I mean, I hadn't done my one man show for about two and a half years, but when I was doing it last, I used to open um either the first half or the second half with a joke about Trump. I used to come on and I'd say, I'm, I'm I'm a bit down. I've been watching the news. You won't believe what President Trump, what he's done now. And I say, okay, said so President Trump is now saying that he intends to build a wall between America and reality. And, you know, and then I'd do this thing about, you know, he says too many facts are sneaking undetected into the country. And so I'd create this little kind of surreal when I watched the mob storming the Capitol, I did think to myself, maybe I won't do that joke anymore. Because it kind of, it came true in a bad way. And, you know, he, he kind of did build the wall between them and reality, you know, and that's his legacy. So sometimes I think the joke turns a bit, it curdles on you a bit, you know, but in general terms, um. Into, I think there's usually a funny grain of something in those situations, and um, yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm not weird. I don't laugh at at uh, other people's misfortune or tragedy, or but, I mean, even something as horrible as the Taliban uh, resuming power in Afghanistan, there is something comic about. The sort of blatant male insecurity of all those mujahideen walking around, still waving rocket launchers around, isn't there?
1: Yeah.
2: I mean, you couldn't you couldn't give a more kind of um, graphic picture of male insecurity that they're literally <laughs> carrying these massive penile weapons around um, after the conflict is over, you know when there are no, you know, when there are no planes to shoot down or no tanks to share they've got rocket launches, not just guns. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I think there's comedy to be found in, in, in most things. I mean, I suppose um, what, he, what is not funny, I suppose, is jokes that are purely there as um, ways of communicating hatred, you know what I mean? So, and that's, this is a really, you know, really hard area. Sometimes when I'm talking about it on stage, I'm conscious of, of um, you know, of if I make a misstep, I could easily get myself canceled. But um, it's quite funny. I mean, you know, I've had two of my adult kids at home with us during lockdown. It's been lovely. Like there've been some very lively dinner time conversations where I've ended up sticking up for the 1970s a bit. And what I think is quite interesting is um, there seems to be this sort of general notion that we all walked around in the 70s sort of gladly condoning uh, racism and sexual assault. But I'm sure, you know, as you remember that There were lots of us saying, no, you know, a lot of the stuff Benny Hill is doing is not all right in the 70s. There were lots of us who were astonished that the black and white minstrels were still on television. You know, I I was having to explain to them that, that actually most of the people you spoke to in the 1970s did think Jimmy Savile was creepy. I mean that sure. you know, we we were, I remember being bewildered as to why is this slightly dodgy sort of um idea, you could see it in the shows. So this notion that um that you know we were all that we were lax about, I think is a bit a bit of a generalization. And um but that the thing about stereotyping, I think is really interesting because the con- The context of who is the storyteller and what is his objective is is central to it, you know. And I, I mean, I yeah. was I remember I um I was sitting in on the steps of Zurich, station, um with a friend, and it was a lovely sunny day, and we were just sitting on the step, you know, loads of steps, and um just sort of with our eyes closed, drinking up the sun. And this policeman came up and so said, you can't sit there. And I and we weren't obstructing anything. And I said, well, why not did you make the steps look untidy? <laughs> <laughs> you think, well, how Swiss is that? You know? And um I you know, I remember going to the post office at Earl's Court, and um there was an Australian in front of me with a big parcel with airmail written all over it, you know. And uh, th- there was, a, you know, quite an elderly lady behind the counter who was very slow, you know, in the days when people used to withdraw their pensions, you know, it was a slow queue and he was huffing and sighing and I could tell he was losing his temper. And he finally got to the front and he plonked his, uh, his parcel on this woman's on the counter and she looked over her glasses and she said, I see, and you want this to go by airmail, to australia do you have you looked at her and he said no i want it to go to venezuela by fucking submarine <laughs> Fantastically, but again you know that is like the Orca australian in a nutshell you know so their observations on on cultural differences you know um but you know you have to fill it out that you have to one. find
1: a way in and yeah. anything could be funny if you have the right intent and you find the right way in.
2: Yeah, and there has to be almost like a, an element of joy at finding these elements of ridiculousness in different communities, you know.
1: Yeah, I think so. So what word makes you laugh, Andy?
2: Oh, currently, I'll tell you the word that makes me laugh is learnings. That makes me laugh. I mean, jargon often makes me laugh. And I often find I, I instinctively like to write characters who, who abuse the language in the form of jargon. But the learnings is currently making me laugh. And when people use it on the telly, I get the giggles because uh, it's become the new... I think you, you hear a lot of politicians use it. So we don't learn lessons. We take away learnings. <laughs> and I'm just... I'm intrigued... By why they think what they think the difference is. I suppose learning sounds less bossy, less sort of autocratic. But um, uh, but why why they decided that the word lesson is a a dogo noun now? But you hear it. Um, you hear it. Matt Hancock used to use it. God bless him. Yeah it just seems to have found its way in. And um, and I always think it's funny because I think the moment I hear the word learnings, I immediately presume someone's being insincere.
1: Yeah. Well, and, and I actually think it's, the, it's probably completely um, deliberate in the sense that they they don't want to think that anybody should think that they have to learn lessons because they don't. They're taking away learnings and they are learned because they're taking away learnings.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: What sound makes you laugh? Uh, That's that's
2: an intriguing one. Well, I can always make my daughter laugh by blowing a raspberry. So... um, and I've never been a big raspberry blower, but for some reason, it just finds a way in. And she is now, you know, uh, an investigative journalist. She's a serious person out there in the world, but I know that at moments of peak stress, if I blow a raspberry, it will make her laugh.
1: It's a wonderful comedic anchor, isn't it? Between yes. you and her as well. So yeah. no, it's a perfect answer to a quick fire question. You went to Cambridge. Uh, would you rather be considered clever or funny? No, funny, I think.
2: I mean, what is clever anyway? I mean, who gets to decide what is clever? I mean, you, you, you know, the world is full of clever people who who have huge um, uh, hidden uh, stupidities, you know. Well, not even hidden, sometimes. <laughs> I mean, being clever per se is not actually that much use, you know. I mean, um, no, I think I'd rather be funny than clever, yeah.
1: Yeah, I think most funny people are clever anyway, so that's probably the answer to that. And finally, Andy. Yes. Desert Island gags. You can only take one joke with you to a desert island. What is
2: it? Yeah. Well, this is a joke um, that divides audiences. And sometimes you tell it and an audience laughs. Sometimes you tell it um, um, and they just look at you in bewilderment. But it's a, jo- it was a joke that Barry Cryer told to me. And I just like the surreal kind of simplicity of it. So Skeleton walks into a pub. He walks up to the bar and says... I- I'd like a pint of lager and a mop. <laughs> but because you have to do that extra bit yeah, of work, just, what happens when a, and yeah. we actually, um, we, we used it in an episode about numbered, we, we gave it to Ben to explain to um, his auntie, his rather humorless auntie. <laughs> and, and we made him explain it to her and kind of draw a picture of what happened. But I think that's, <laughs> A skeleton, yeah, I'd like a pint of lava and a mop. Oh, uh, okay. is, um, maybe uh, that would be my Desert Island gag.
1: That's brilliant. It's, it's with you on the Desert Island. I'd thank like you. to thank you for being a wonderful guest, Andy Hamilton. Thank you for being on the Humorology Podcast. Thank you for having me. The Humorology Podcast was hosted by Paul Barros and produced by Simon Banks. Music by Steve Hayworth. Creative direction by Les Hughes. And additional research by Helen Sykes. Please remember to subscribe, like and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. This has been a Big Sky production.